Good morning. I'm Terry Langford. I'm a reporter for Texas Tribune, and welcome. Glad to see you here. Um, I think we're going to have a fun conversation with the new HHSC commissioner. Um, Chris's new role as executive commissioner of Texas Health and Human Services Commission comes after decades spent in leadership positions. He served as the commissioner of the Texas Department of Aging and Disability Services and the state's Medicaid director. In 2004, he helped oversee the consolidation of what was then 15 agencies down to the current five. Sounds familiar. Sounds like you're the right guy at the right time. Um, after a year punctuated by contracting problems, Chris was tapped by Governor Greg Abbott to write the ship that is HHSC. So let's get started. Let's do it. You ready? Absolutely. <laughs> you were nearly out the door. I mean, literally, nearly out the door. You were five seconds from freedom, and you got pulled back. You were about to retire. Why come back? Why take this job? It's one of the hardest jobs. People don't stay very long, as you've probably noticed. Um, and now you're in charge of one of, the largest, one of the largest state agencies in the country. So what's your first priority? How long are you going to stay? What do you hope to accomplish? Well, you, that, that's a lot of questions embedded in that. Yes, that's what uh, we're doing here. Yeah, but, but, but I'll, first off, I'll start off by saying that, you know, I was wondering the same thing this morning as I got up uh, to come be interrogated by you in front of a lot of people. Uh, but no, seriously, the, uh, uh, I, I think I got a call uh, at 526 on my very last day of work. Uh, and you know who was I on said the, you were five seconds I, out the door. I, 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 that's true. I, I was actually staring at the door on my <laughs> on the way out. Um, and I, 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 you think something like that may occur, uh, but you don't know what your real reaction is going to be till you get that question. Would you do this job? Uh, and I think when the when I heard the question, um, you know, would you be the executive commissioner? Uh, at that moment, I knew where my heart. was. Really? Okay. Yeah, it, and it wasn't retirement? It wasn't retirement. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now you're in. You've, you've got a lot of things you were handed. This was, I think it's fair to say that the agency wasn't in its best shape when it was handed to you. Right. You've had contracting problems that stemmed about a year ago that first started with 21CT and the fraud tracking software contract, a no-bid contract. We later learned there were other no-bid contracts or non-competitive contracts. Um, AT&T um, was cited by the state auditor's office as one that kind of got away from the agency a little bit. Um, also, Terrell State Hospital privatization contract. What happened? Can you talk about, was it a part of a, an agency too big to fail and just nobody's watching, or what exactly happened to this point? No, actually, I think that's, a, that's an unfair characterization as the agency as a whole. Uh, and, and one of the things that uh, I think is really important, I think you learn lessons from the past, but it's much more important to go forward. And I think the question you, you asked me when we started off is, how do you get the agency back to a place where uh, people have confidence in what we do? And how do you do that? Well, the, the first thing uh, I, I started off doing is I really laid out the, what I believe to be expectations or values that I expect the agency to operate. Sent those out to staff, and then I had staff meetings, whole staff meetings, all staff meetings at all five agencies. I actually had two at HHSC. Uh, and I think you would be very pleased if you heard the response and the questions that people asked me. 
because we, I, I kind of give a recitation of the values, and then I let them ask any question they wanted to ask. Uh, and, and the questions that were asked and the tone of those meetings uh, were something that as, as an agency head or as an executive over a large enterprise were extremely heartening. For example, dads talked about reducing psychotropic medication use uh, in nursing facilities. In the Department of uh, Family and Protective Services, the questions really revolved around how do we transform our system to protect children. It was really a very heartening experience. In HHSC, uh, I've done some remarkable things in the eligibility area. Uh, you know, as you recall, that our eligibility systems just a few years ago were some of the worst in the nation. Now they're some of the best. Uh, being rewarded not just because of our accuracy and determinations, but also because of the innovations that we've uh, accomplished in that area. So I, I, I think when you, you can pivot from there some things that happen in the agency, but there's so many good things that happen in the agency. And, and, and by the way, I don't fault the press for not reporting the good things. That's not your job. Why, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> how, okay. how, however... You know, our folks always ask, why don't we get good press? And I always say to them, um, if we're doing this for good press or somebody, we're doing it for the wrong reason. Our people show up to work every day because they have a commitment to the people that we serve. When you think of the people that are served in the health and human services enterprise, you're talking about the state's most vulnerable people. And you don't show up and work that, in this environment and on these issues whether you're working in information technology or whether you're working in facilities, if you don't understand that you have a connection to those people. I get that, but I think a lot of people are still worried about what they've seen in the last year. You had a strike force commission that was appointed by Governor Abbott talking about a, an agency in quiet turmoil. Um, if I remember this correctly, and I'm sure you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, but you were actually touted as one of the, the sort of the highlights of, of the agency. I'm kind of curious, you were, you're among executive staff when all this was going on with the contracting problems. How'd you dodge all this incoming fire? How did you stay out of the... I, yeah, I, I, yeah I, guess, I guess that's a good question. But, but you know, I, 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 think, I think over the years, uh, you know, you conduct your business in a certain way. People understand how you conduct your business. And I just th think there's things that, that people don't broach with you if they, if they understand, uh, you know, how, how you approach your business. And uh, I'm not, you know, you could debate all day long whether any of those contracts were appropriate or inappropriate. And, and I, I think, obviously, you, the, you know, members of the media have come to their own conclusions on that. Uh, but the fact of the matter remains is, is that I, I've always tried to focus on the business of the agency. I've always tried to focus at the end of the day on the people that we serve, and, and, and I think that's, uh, um, that's an important element of what we do. It, can I say something else for you? Because I know you're going to ask me another question. No, go right ahead. Okay, and, and that's one of the expectations and the values that I ask staff to do. I, I tell them one of the most important things for us to do in health and human services is to enjoy our work. Very few jobs give, you, give the opportunity to a person to impact and affect people's lives on a regular and daily basis. Whether it be uh, a child uh, that finds a, a foster home or gets into a foster home and is adopted, or whether it is uh, a single mom that gets a job, uh, maybe even in our, our eligibility system and becomes a supervisor. Our jobs have the opportunity to impact people's lives on a daily basis. 
Uh, and I think uh, w once you go out and touch and see and feel folks, you become focused on those things. Uh, and I think, I think people over time understood how I focused on the business and what my motivations were. And I, I just, and it's, it, when you focus on those things, uh, it's easy not to be involved in something that may, uh, you know, may not look great in the uh, front uh, page of the Tribune. Well, I, I don't think it's, I, I think it's somewhat of a unfair characterization that only the media found problems with these, yeah. these contracts. Lawmakers yeah. definitely found oh, some certainly, problems. Certainly. And, um, and while many have come to the conclusion, and there is an investigation still going on, there mm -hmm. is, that, that's still ongoing, a lot of people, including the task force and, and, and others, came to the conclusion that what happened with those contracts, with the non-competitive nature of them, is that it, it, there was obviously some sort of direction that that was okay to do somewhere. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people had questions about it. These are huge contracts. HHSC and its other sister agencies do a world of good. But this isn't like some, I, I, I realize that, but to say, to kind of paint it as some sort of, you know, sort of nonprofit, small village outfit, it is not. It is a large enterprise. Certainly it is, is all the agencies total, it's 53,000. Your budget's in the billions. Um, so what confidence, I mean, what can you talk about? What confidence should people have going forward that these kind of contracts are yeah. not going to happen again. I, I think you. I think you put it in perspective. It's correct. I, I, I think the expectation is is that things be competitively bid regardless of the situation. I think the legislature spoke very strongly with Senate Bill 20. I think they spoke very strongly and and really sent a message. For example, uh, on the privatization of state hospitals and things like that. That that uh, they have specific goals in how they want business conducted, uh, and uh, you know the agency will always work. Uh, to achieve those goals, uh, certainly will under my tenure. And while we're on that topic, how long is your tenure going to be? Do you have any ideas? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I, I, Are you going to be here for next session? <laughs> yeah, why would you ask a question such as that? Just uh, the, comes to mind. Uh, it, well, you know, I, I, think, I think commissioners' tenures are, are really uh, focused on objectives. Uh, really, one of the th most important things I'll do, is, I, I believe, is to begin the renegotiation of the 1115 waiver. That 1115 waiver has resulted uh, in a tremendous amount of good throughout this state. And people focus a lot on, well, we've done well with uncompensated care payments, or we've done well in our, we call our system reform payments. But what sometimes is forgotten about that is that it's also provided an infrastructure and a basis for innovations across the state. Uh, when you look at what we've done with Community First Choice, that is providing a benefit to persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities, the same benefit that people with uh, physical disabilities have had since the 80s. Also, extending habilitation uh, is a benefit to people uh, with physical disabilities, too. What we have done in that area could not have been done without the 1115 waivers expansion of managed care across the state. Uh, what we've done in our dual demonstration where people can receive the same services, uh, receive their services through Medicare and Medicaid in a coordinated fashion, by the way, if they choose. Right. Uh, and it is, uh, th there's so much good that has happened in the state of Texas, and even for the federal government. I mean, when you look at the cost trends uh, that the state and federal governments would have incurred had we not had the 1115 waiver, 
we're $8 billion under what those projections would be while still maintaining a, 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 what I believe to be a better level of service by adding community first choice, by doing some other things uh, in the Let me stop you right there. For those, and, and uh, you know, I know we attract a lot of healthcare geeks, but those who, who don't understand what the 1115 waiver is, um, four years ago, Texas received $29 billion over five years um, as part of this program. It's called 1115 because it comes from the Social Security Act. Um, and it helps offset costs incurred by healthcare providers, particularly in the ERs. But it also, as Chris has talked about, helps set up health, um, health programs um, across the state. But what we've seen lately, I mean, we've seen what happened to Florida, which is going to get far less money. Um, what, the renewal is, was last month. What's the, what's the what's the ask? Yeah, and that's. The, I mean, are we going to get thirty million, or is it going to be far less? And what's yeah. the effect of that? And I, I, you asked you asked what I think is the central question in the negotiations. And and, and I, I think if you compare Texas to Florida or New York on this renewal, uh, I, I don't think you can do that and come to the correct and accurate conclusion about it. Uh, we're not asking for the full amount of that eight billion dollar difference, like some other states you know may or may not have. I mean, there's a debate about that. Um, but I think what our federal partners have asked, that, by the way, the waiver expires on September 30th of 16. I'm sorry, you're correct. Yeah, and so the, the, uh, uh, the renewal request was sent on this This, this past, past September, September 30th. Yeah, a couple right. few weeks ago. And so we'll begin negotiations on it. What our federal partners have asked us to do is to do an uncompensated care study. Uh, and they're going to give us parameters around that uncompensated care study. They have not given us those yet in order for us to procure those in a competitive way, of course. Uh, glad to hear that, it. Procure that study, get the results of that study, and have it inform the negotiations. There, it's very unlikely that we could do that within the next year between now and the waiver expires. Okay. So there'll probably be some shorter extension than, than the five years that we've asked for. Um, but I will say this. Our uncompensated care needs in Texas have empirically increased significantly since the negotiations of the, of the waiver five years ago. For example, in the last year of the waiver, we called DY5, um, there's $3.1 billion in uncompensated care allocated for that year. The actual cost of uncompensated care for that last year of the waiver is almost a couple of billion above that. Oh. And uh, so when we negotiate the extension of that waiver, we'll make that point uh, to our federal partners. And so, you know, we, there, there are very different elements in the negotiation of this waiver than, say, Florida or New York or California had. Uh, I believe we are in a much better position uh, to negotiate the waiver then I think some of the other states were going in. So uh, the elements of the, of the negotiation are going to be significantly different in Texas than they were in other states. Okay. Still can't get you to answer that question. How long are you going to be here? You know, if you set a timeline, I think, for your, for your tenure, I think you probably have made somewhat of a mistake. I, I think it, it once, you know, when you become a leader of an organization, you have certain objectives to achieve. Sometimes those objectives take a shorter amount of time. Sometimes they take a longer amount of time. Once I achieve those objectives, and I know what they are. What are they? <laughs> you're, like, you're like really good at this, right? So, uh, so uh, I said, I mean, how, when we, you yeah, leave, yeah, what do you want the agency to look like? Okay. And, and, you, and you talked about consolidation. And, and right. You're really making me jump around a lot. And so, you, you know, you're trying to get me off my game a little bit, and I know that. So. So, but, but the 1115 is obviously important. 
I think creating a culture in the agency uh, that is a culture of excellence is something that's important to me. You talked about consolidation um, when you introduced me just a moment ago. That was a very nice introduction, by the way. Uh, but, you, but you talked about consolidation. I think if we approach this round as a consolidation and not a transformation of how we do business, then I think this round would have failed miserably. It is, it is my goal, uh, it is my desire to transform our system in a way that it works significantly better. And let me give you an example of what I think we've done. And I see some of my friends that work in the long-term services and supports area in the audience. When you think about where we were 12 years ago when we created DADS, for example, a long-term care agency, there was a desire to bring the long-term care programs in the state together in a way where the long-term care programs worked well. Uh, and that was a great thought, a great noble thought to do, and we did it, and we did it relatively well. But I think over that time, uh, the recognition of the link between acute services, acute Medicaid services, acute health care services, and long-term care became much more apparent. And you can't improve the quality of somebody's life unless those services are coordinated in, in, in an appropriate way. Like I like to say in the office, if you got four or five people in charge, ain't nobody in charge. And so we've developed a system, we're developing a system and developed a system uh, where uh, you have one entity in charge of services to a person. With you, what the Sunset Bill envisions is bringing in those long-term services and supports that are policy and operations or at DADS into uh, HHSC, where not just the delivery of those services can be coordinated, but the policy and the synergies that occur when you bring things together uh, can occur in, in, a, in a much more dynamic way than it uh, may have in the past. And then I take that a step further. Uh, one of the things that I think that was a real strong realization uh, and a weakness in our child protective services system is, is, a, is a, not necessarily a lack of recognition, but a lack of coordination with our mental health system. Many times families in crisis are in need of mental health services. And I think those synergies and things that could happen, and, 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 and if leadership in this transformation works the way it should work, instead of being siloed into different agencies, uh, we'll be working together for the betterment of that child, for example, in child protective services, that their parents may need mental health services, or that child may need uh, intensive mental health services, maybe because of an abusive situation they were in. So I think it's a very, very exciting time for us. Uh, but if I, one of my major goals is to set in motion a culture where that transformation can occur, not just a consolidation on paper of agencies. Okay. Um, speaking of services, uh, let's talk about therapy services. Okay, can I have a drink of water first? Yes, you can. <laughs> no, you can't. Um, last legislative session, HHSC was told to make some serious cuts into the therapy programs for Medicaid uh, providers. You did, you did that, the agency did that, and the therapy providers howled. And it, were you thrown under the bus by the ledge? Uh, absolutely was not. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, no, no, seriously, the, the, uh, the, this is a debate that was not brand new to the, to the legislature that recently Adjourned, signing down. Uh, th this has been a debate that's gone on for eight or eight or ten years. Uh, and, and, and let me first say that 
you know, I talked about going out and touching, seeing, and feeling the people that are served. Uh, one of the great moments I've had in the last, in, over the last 90 days, uh, I went to visit a therapy provider in McAllen, Texas. Uh, and I was able, uh, it, it's a, it was a facility provider, it wasn't a home health provider. Uh, and they do some remarkable things with children. And I was actually able to participate uh, in one of the therapy sessions for a child that was there. And, and if you can't, unless you see and feel it, you can't understand the impact that those services have on those on those children. It's it's really pretty remarkable. I mean, I know I know we're at the University of Texas. I'm probably not supposed to talk about God or anything here, but but uh, because it's a it's a state institution. But, but you can kind of you can kind of feel a presence uh, when a mom is watching her child be able to like pick something up and throw it for the for the first time. And that was part of the therapy. So you had that you know those motor skills down where they can do that. Uh, and it, 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 I'm not finished. Okay. How you know? How, however, uh, you know, there's also a balance to that. You, you know, you you understand uh, that you don't want those children not to get those therapies. And I think that's exactly what Senator Patrick and Senator Nelson said to me was, you need to make sure that access exists in this while trying to come to a place where therapy services are, you know, what people some people would be be appropriately um, appropriately paid for. And, and, and you can compare it to other states, you can compare it to Medicare or whatever. Each state's different, like you say, you know, and so we, we want to try to get to the right answer uh, on how we reimburse our therapy providers across the state. And, and, and that should be the goal, but in that program, there has been um, a lot of consternation about uh, pockets in the state that are, their billings or far exceed other larger populations. Yeah. I remember doing a story on, on therapy about four years ago where Hidalgo um, had, was yeah. off the chart on, uh, or Hidalgo uh, County and compared to Harris County, which has yeah. more poor children. Yeah. So you have some billing spikes. Mm -hmm. You have some, some would say, some excess in the system that needed to be tightened up. Yeah. Um, and some, some say that there were I mean, were there problems in the system? Yeah, I, I think, you know, and I want to address the South Texas issue that you just talked about. Right. Everybody, anytime people always talk about problems in the healthcare system, they talk about South Texas, it always kind of ticks me off because it's one of my hometowns is in the Valley. And so uh, therapy services in the Valley have not significantly increased over the past few years since you did your story, by the way. In fact, they've actually trended down. We did some right. Uh, well, I mean, I think we occasionally do things right, but as you say, you will not report those things when we do things right. <laughs> I have done so many. Yeah, no, I, no I, I'm teasing you. Yeah, and, and, I, and, and I do believe you've always been extraordinarily fair with us. But, uh, but, the, uh, but, but I, think, I think the issue is, is the appropriate provision of therapy services uh, to children and adults. I mean, this is not just focused just on children, but children and adults that need those therapies. Uh, and I think, you know, there was uh, utilization in the Valley that certainly looked higher uh, per capita than other places. And uh, I, th I think those, those services in the Valley have leveled off and to some degree decreased. Uh, I think if you scratch some of the therapy providers in the Valley that are there now, I don't think they would tell you anything different than I just told you, that uh, they believe that uh, I think they've reached a, a decent balance there. Now, there are some areas in the state where therapy services have, in, you know, have increased. And, and you mentioned Harris. Harris... Uh, a few years ago had a pretty big increase in, in the number of people receiving therapy services. Uh, I, I think, and, and what is important too, is I think some, the access and some of the things are regionalized. 
Uh, I think you have good access in some areas. I think a story that was uh, um, in your uh, uh, publication earlier in the week talked about somebody that provides therapy services or they have the provision of services to children in the Nueces service area said, you know, we're, you know, we have you know, a sufficient number of providers here. Well, there's probably other areas of the state where that doesn't occur. Uh, and I think we have to achieve that balance between uh, appropriate utilization and appropriate reimbursement to get to the, to get to the right answer. And, and I think it's clear nobody believes we're at that right answer yet. So now you say there's flexibility in the cuts. Yeah. Um, how much do you do now, and how do you justify it? I mean, you, when you yeah. say there's flexibility, what, what are we looking at as far as yeah, I, I think, Yeah, I, th I think, you know, we're in the middle of litigation on that. Obviously, we were sued. So, you know, uh, there, there's some questions I really can't answer, but, you know, I really hope to uh, be able to engage stakeholders and even plaintiffs in a meaningful conversation to get to the right answer. Okay. So we don't have a final answer on that. No, I, really, we're in litigation. I can't really Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, let's talk a little bit about Medicaid expansion. Do you really think Medicaid expansion is a bad idea? You really asked me that, didn't you? I really okay. did. You know, um, you know that one of my favorite movies is uh, Casablanca. <laughs> oh, and uh, the Humphrey Bogart character is what is a, what is a great character. And so when Louis asking him uh, about uh, his preference, uh, preferences in the war, he said, Louis, are you pro-Vici or free France? So, uh, you know, I, you've kind of asked me that question. And, and uh, you, you know, uh, Medicaid expansion is something I think the legislature has spoken on, uh, particularly in Senate Bill 7, not this session, but the previous session. I think our governor's spoken on it. Uh, I, 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 I know what my direction is, uh, both from statute and in the executive branch. Um, I, I don't think we're really going in that direction. But some in your agency do think Medicaid expansion is a good idea. They never expressed it to me. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. I want to go back to something about contracting. Um, I understand that at HHSC there's always been sort of an open door, door policy yeah. for contractors. Yeah. And what I mean by that, um, I want to be very clear and specific mm -hmm. on that, is that you know it doesn't cost the state anything to listen to a good idea yeah. or... Um, but post 21 CT, do we still have that open door policy um, now? Are you still listening yeah. to pitches, and should you be yeah. in this sort of post Billy Hamilton strike force yeah. report? Yeah, world? yeah, and, and I think there's a there's a there's a distinct difference between between somebody giving you a pitch and and you understanding what's in the marketplace. I think if I sat in my office and shut the door and didn't understand what was going on in technology or didn't understand what was going on in the provision of healthcare outside of the Medicaid program, I would be doing a very, very poor job. Uh, but however, uh, I, I do believe that any, uh, uh, you know, if there's an initiative to enter into any agreement or contract or whatever, it needs to be done really out in the open. Um, I think, as you know, y'all, um, you open records my schedule uh, on a regular I didn't, basis. I think that was Edgar Walton Where is right he? over there. Yes. Right over there. there that would be Edgar. Edgar, Edgar, Edgar knows uh, what I do <laughs> all day, every day. Uh, and, and, uh, I, he hasn't said this, but I'm sure I do live a very boring life, Edgar. But uh, the uh, but but at the, but at the same at the same time, I, you know, I, I don't. I, I think if you, you look at my schedule. I don't think you'll see it replete with vendor presentations and pitches. In fact, I'm not sure there's there's been one, but. Okay. I don't know. I, there may have been. Was there any vendor pitches in that one? <laughs> 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 
Um, your biggest headache, um, contracting headache. Oh. No, no, no. Your biggest <laughs> contracting headache came out of the OIG office, yeah. or in, um, last year, right. the purchase of 21 CTs broad tracking software. Your executive team there were forced to re resign. You have a new OIG now. Yeah. What's it like working with the new OIG? You know, uh, I, I, our, our new inspector general is a very accomplished fellow. I mean, I, you know, he was inspector general in Iraq, and he's a very, he's a really smart guy. I mean, I, I've enjoyed working with him. He, he's been uh, very uh, op open and upfront with me about issues. Uh, when I've asked him to, uh, you know, there may be something I need him to look in. He's done it very quickly and. Um, I think there is a deep desire for, you know, a, a level of, uh, of excellence uh, by him, uh, and I think his staff, too. I think he's uh, uh, recruited a significant number of people, including people that I was really relying upon uh, to work, uh, work for me and paid him more money. So, no, maybe I am a little agitated with him, come to think of it. But, <laughs> but no, no, he, he, no, seriously, he, he, he really is a... Uh, uh, a very distinguished fellow and, and somebody that takes their work very seriously. And I, I think the state's fortunate to have it. There's still the insinuation that there's fraud and there's, there's, there's overages in the system. Yeah. Are you still finding fraud in the system? Yeah, you know, I, I think whenever you spend the kind of money that we spend, I, th I think there's going to be, uh, you know, I always hesitate to use the word fraud. There's always going to be some level of waste. There's always going to be maybe some, un, you know, unintentional issues that cause overbilling or things like that, but, it, but at the same time, um, I, I believe that there's a, you know, a commitment on, in our system uh, not to tolerate true fraud uh, and not to, con uh, not to tolerate overbilling either, and, and I think our providers understand that. Going back to the therapy providers um, situation for, an, for a minute. Um, water again. Ow. <laughs> um, why do you think Dan Patrick and Jay Nelson had that change of heart? I don't know they had a change of heart. I mean, you know, the, the, uh, uh, I think they wanted to make it clear to me what their expectations were. And I, I, I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, uh, um, it, it's it, as you know, making decisions uh, at my level sometimes can be very difficult. And, and I was glad to have the input. Okay. Uh, what's your relationship with Senator Schwertner and uh, the Lieutenant Governor since it's all occurred? <laughs> it's great. I, in fact, I, I just talked to... Uh, Senator Schwartner yesterday, and, and uh, uh, that's good. Good. So yeah. you're going to be around a while. Well, uh, <laughs> just trying to trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the sort of revolving door that we've mm -hmm. seen out of the medic. You know, you uh, were director of Medicaid for many yeah, years. Sure was. Um, and you were about out the door. Were you going to go work for a managed care company? I was not. <laughs> In fact, I, I, you know, I, and I think, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I, I, I had no idea what I was going to do. And um, I, I still, when I, when I leave State Government, I still have no idea. I don't, I, you know, one of the things I think, uh, since we're talking about movies, that one of my favorite lines in a movie was, it's, you know, it's money they have, but peace they lack. Whenever I leave, I'm going to be looking for peace. I mean, I, I have, uh, uh, no, seriously, it, 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 it's, uh, um, I think people that work with me know I get there pretty early and I stay pretty late. That takes a heavy toll on a family. I'm gonna I'm gonna tear up here a little bit. Um, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know. I, I have no idea what I'm gonna do. Well, talking about that revolving door, but we have seen in the past Medicaid directors end up as managed care lobbyists. Mm -hmm. Or and should there be stricter rules about that? And sh yeah. uh, and 
Should that be tightened? That wasn't part of the contract reforms. Yeah. Chris, you're going to make me cry. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, my, my, my wife's the one that's crying. But the, uh, no, the, uh, so, uh, no, no I, you know, I don't know. I, I think everybody has a right to make a living, you know, and, and I don't think you say, yeah, well, you just because you worked in a Medicaid office or because you work somewhere, you can't go get a job and feed your family. I, I don't think that's a, that's a reasonable thing. I mean, you know, it's, uh, um, I, I think you have to make sure that, uh, people that are making decisions in your office on a daily basis aren't, you know, you know trying to feather their nest for the future. I mean, I think that's uh, um, that, that's something you always want to make sure doesn't happen. Okay. Yeah. We don't know when, you, how long you want to stay, but yeah. when you leave, can you talk about three things you'd like to accomplish? Before I leave or yeah. when I leave? That me and play by it. Yeah, and, and I think I said, I think... How do you want to live? What kind of shape? Do you, I mean, what is it that you want to bring to the agency before yeah. you leave? Well, I, I think two things. I think renegotiation of that 1115 waiver. And really, you know, we talked about all the good elements of the 1115 waiver. And what, it, what I was really trying to say is, is that I want to put the healthcare system in this state in a position where they can do great things. I can't dictate from HHSC what a provider in Coleman, Texas, or... Houston, Texas may do. Uh, I can't dictate what a managed care organization, how they're going to pay somebody, or what innovative practices they may bring, or a nursing facility, or something like that. But I, I'd like the 1115 to allow the healthcare system in the state uh, to do innovative things that focus on the consumer preferences of the 21st century, not the 20th century, uh, with the new technologies and things we have. That's what I'd like to get out of the 1115 waiver. Second is, uh, that dynamic agency where you're talking between CPS and the mental health system, where you're talking between long-term services and acute care, uh, where, you're do where, where there's, where there's a, a level of dynamic thought uh, and initiatives that take place in the agency. Uh, and, you know, and the third thing um, I'd like to do, I'd, I'd like to leave and have nobody notice I was gone. <laughs> because, because, and when I say that, I think my greatest job, the biggest job I'll ever have, mm -hmm. is to make sure the person that takes my place is in a position to do a better job than I did. Uh, and so, you know, th those are the, the, I think those are my three objectives. You know, I, I think if, if I waited till every initiative was through before I left, I'd be there a hundred years. Uh, <laughs> because, because there's always something new and evolving in the space. Okay. okay. Um, I think we're going to open it up for questions. If anybody from the audience would have a question for the commissioner, please come up to the microphone right here. Go ahead and see. Can you tell me who you are? Good morning. Uh, my name is Colleen Horton. I'm with the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health, which is part of the University of Texas. Commissioner, um, a lot's been done as far as mental health and a lot of discussion has taken place, additional funding, but we continue to have a critical mental health workforce shortage in Texas. Um, the only bill that passed last session that I'm aware of as far as um, expanding the workforce was Senate Bill 239 on the loan reimbursement. There are things we can do in the short term. Um, loan reimbursement will help, but that's going to take a number of years. There are things we can do in the short term, like expanding peer services, expanding um, telemental health, and, and, and looking at scope of practice types of things. In the reorganization, what is the commission going to do to make sure that we address the workforce shortage? 
you know, that's, that's a, that, nobody has asked me a more difficult question than that one, to be honest. And because if you look across the United States, uh, there is a, a shortage of mental health professionals and mental health workers in every, almost every state in the nation. So we can't pay more and go raid another state. Uh, so a lot of this is going to, some of what has to be done <clears throat> will be done outside of the Health and Human Services Commission to train more professionals in this area. Uh, but what I, you know, what I think we, what we can do uh, is, is help, uh, I think, you know, particularly our local uh, mental health authorities, on things like telemedicine and things like that, where we can have extenders that extend those services. I wish I could give you the, a great answer on that, but I'm, I'm afraid I can't. If I knew the answer on that, you and I would have already sat down and we'd have, we'd have worked it out. But um, I, I, don't have, I don't have the answer for you. I think one of the answers, though, is really expanding um, opportunities for peer services. The research is there, and we need to make it yeah. available. I think, yeah, and you're, you're correct about that. That's a great point. But, but I think, and that will help, but e even if we did that exactly the way you want to do it, uh, which I think is, is always pretty sound, uh, I, I think uh, we're still going to have a shortage in the area that Definitely. we're still going to have to address way beyond uh, what we have. Okay, thank you, Commissioner. Thank you. Great question. Good morning. I'm Carl Jones. I'm from Spicewood outside of the... Austin, you had mentioned, uh, Chris, that uh, you didn't think that the Medicaid expansion was the direction in which the legislature was going to go and the governor. You were the director of Medicaid services for three years. And yeah, that's not the direction in which we want to go. What is? Yeah, uh, and do you personally was, believe, yes or no, to adopt the Medicaid expansion in lieu of this state still has last I checked, the highest percentage of uninsured people in the country. Yeah, let, let me in lieu of that state. fact, how, what is the answer for those people if you don't embrace Medicaid, and, and what's the odds of going another direction? What is your alternative? Yeah, and, and let, me, let, me, let me say it was three years, four months, and 14 days. So, so uh, the, uh, the, 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 your question is central, is that, you know, we still have a, an adult population. It's, it's largely able-bodied adults that are in there. And um, what, you know, how do we provide health services to them uh, outside of Medicaid expansion? Because I, I, th I think it's, my, my direction is clear from the legislature and from the executive branch on this issue. Uh, so I, we can deal in hypotheticals a lot, but that's, that's what we have in front of us now. And that's, uh, and I think what we've done uh, with the uh, uh, delivery system reform incentive payments I think people, what we've done at the local level, I think is, is uh, to try to address the issues been, has not been is insignificant. But I also want to point out something to you, that Texas is different than a lot of other states. Even if we expanded Medicaid, and even if every single person that was eligible for a subsidy received a subsidy, received health care through the exchange, we would still have significant uncompensated care costs uh, that exceed just about any other state. So uh, I, I think, you know, believing that it's, it, it is, you know, a panacea to some degree, uh, believing that the, ex, the exchange, Texas is still going to have challenges that other states just, do, just will, does not and will not have. What's the alternative? And, and the alternative, as I said, I think, I think local communities are working, they're, you know, with our district projects. I think local hospital districts have provided 
uh, different levels of coverage. Uh, that's the alternative, and that's what's in place now. Good morning. Uh, my name is Tanya Lavelle. I work with Easter Seals Central Texas, and I also represent uh, the five Easter Seals affiliates across the state. Um, my question is about uh, the Medicaid rate cuts for acute therapies for children. I wanted to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to go visit one of the providers of these services in South Texas. Um, I think that's incredibly important, and a lot of what you say, I think, kind of echoes what I've heard, is that a lot of legislators, they talk about how, you know, we need to save this money, but you don't understand a lot of the services until you see them in action, so thank you for that. Um, I know that we've been fighting about these rate cuts. I was wondering if you were able to give us an insight into some of the ideas that you guys are coming up with around not cutting the services, um, because I can speak from experience with our, at least in our Houston affiliate, for example. Um, we don't make money off these services. The victory for us last year was that we only lost $250,000 providing these services. Yeah, and, and, and you said something that I, I want to correct. By the way, when I was at that therapy provider, with that therapy provider, there were members of the legislature with me when I was there. So uh, I, I don't think it's a fair characterization to say they haven't done the same thing and touched, to touch, see, and feel the people that receive the services. I, I think it was somewhat of an unfair characterization. But, uh, but you know, the, as, as we move forward uh, with the issue, the, you know, you, you may have had an issue where you've lost, you know, some money. Like I said earlier, some of these issues are somewhat regionalized. Uh, like I said, you had in the Nueces service area, one of the predominant players in the game there in children's services says, even under the rate reductions, we're not, you know, they don't believe they'll have a, 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 an issue with access. That's their opinion. That's not mine. Uh, but uh, I, I think, I, I, you know, I think you're right. I think we need to work with both the, uh, uh, the therapy providers. We also need to work and make sure that uh, they're paid correctly. Uh, you know, one of the things I think some of the therapy providers have asked for are things like cost reports and things like that. That's usually something we reserve for things like uh, ICFs, intermediate care facilities and nursing facilities. Uh, and, and, you know, those services are, even with cost reports, are reimbursed significantly below cost. So, you know, sometimes you got to be careful what you ask for. Uh, and, and I, you know, we, the, the, we don't have the kind of data on those services that we have on nursing facilities and other places. Uh, but, you know, if that's, you know, the desire of, the, of that community and the legislature, that's the path we'll go. Thank you. Thank you. She just took my question. So I'm going to think of something else. Okay. I was wondering, uh, I'm Grace Shemaine with the League of Women Voters of Texas, and one of my concerns is the differences in health care that's available for people in rural communities versus uh, cities. I've always felt that uh, cities, uh, the poor and the uh, uninsured, have a lot more uh, uh, availability of health care, yet in the rural areas we have a great deal of difficulty finding healthcare facilities. We've lost a lot of hospitals. Do you have any suggestions for how we're gonna help out those rural communities? You answer your question, yes. And the challenge in rural communities is really issues of proximity, as you said. Uh, for example, in West Texas, uh, Texas Tech has been very proactive in telemedicine, largely because it's necessary there. Uh, you, you know, you've had rural hospitals and rural nursing facilities and others have closed in that area. Uh, but they've really tried to pick up the pick up the pace and pick up the slack by using telemedicine, uh, trying to get doctors to clinics in uh, different communities. Uh, one of the things that that I see it was v that, that was very very uh, effective 
uh, is we have these things called network access uh, improvement payments that the managed care organizations uh, work with uh, either you know a local health related institution like Texas Tech out in West Texas uh, to actually place a physician in a clinic uh, during certain hours of the day and then also provide telemedicine services from that same location uh, at other times. Uh, I think the rural challenges uh, have been have been there for a long time, uh, but as medicine improves and expectations even in rural communities continues to grow. Uh, and, and you see, actually see some people moving back into rural communities after they've lived in large cities for a while. Uh, I think you'll see, uh, you'll see technology uh, take up the place and, and move past that proximity issues that are, that are present. And UTMB does telemedicine too for anybody from UTMB. Okay. I'm a Texas Tech graduate. I got Hi, I'm Diana Martinez, and I'm with the Texas Assisted Living Association. And Commissioner, can you share with us some of your thoughts on the, um, I guess, transformation of regulatory into one division? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So, uh, you know, right now you have regulatory uh, of hospitals at, at the Department of State Health Services, and then you got regulatory of long-term care facilities at DADS. There's some vision that both that those are you know are brought together into uh, into one place. Uh, that's something that won't happen until 2017. The, you know, the consolidation became iterative as the, as the, the transformation, sorry, uh, uh, became iterative as the uh, session went on. Uh, and so that's something that will happen in 17. We're really focused right now on what will happen on September 1st to 16 while keeping an eye on 17. But, uh, but that, that is something that would take place, uh, envisioned to take place on September 1st of 2017. Thanks. Dennis Morrell, Coalition of Texans with Disabilities. So the uh, community care workforce is a huge issue. And uh, the reason why is the, the, the crisis exists is the low rate of pay. Are you willing to put in a very significant increase for these community care workers in your next LAR executive commissioner? Well, I would, uh, <laughs> I, I would, I would point out that we made a pretty strong attempt going into this last session too. Uh, and I think, I think, as you know, I've, I've had a personal commitment uh, on that issue for many years, and, and I don't intend for that to waver. Thank you. You bet. Anybody else? Anybody else mad at me for something? Oh, no one's mad at you, Chris. Oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> I had a question. Um, you want, is it I guess, working? I don't know if it's working. I'll okay. go ahead and use it. Um, one last thing I meant to ask you. Um, going back to the Terrell Hospital situation, mm -hmm. um, the state of the state hospital system is in, it, it's in pretty bad shape. I don't think that's a um, unfair characterization, as you would say. Um, there was an attempt to privatize one of the hospitals. Is there anything going on right now um, to privatize one or all of the hospitals? I think the legislature was really clear that ain't happening. And so, uh, but, but, but could it? Not, I mean, but, but, let me, but let me tell you, I, I, I don't think that, um, anybody is ever going to be satisfied with the services that are provided in our state hospitals, nor should they be. We should always be striving for something better. And I will tell you that uh, particularly the University of Texas at Tyler has been very committed uh, to working with our state hospitals, particularly in East Texas, but it's something that could be replicated in other areas mm -hmm. uh, by having, uh, and we talked about the, the mental health uh, workforce shortages. That is an extraordinary opportunity, I think, to partner our health-related institutions with uh, with our state hospitals to provide better services. And, you know, I, I know you talked a lot about contracting and things earlier, and that was a uh, something that, that Commissioner Janet 
really championed was to have those health-related institutions be involved in the provision of services with our uh, state hospitals. Uh, had, he had a really strong commitment to it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I know, you know, you talked a little bit about privatization at Terrell, but, you know, it, it, the root of it was really problems that happened at Terrell and a desire to improve that system. Anything we should have asked you you want to talk about? I would never tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I really, no, I don't. Oh, so, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming today. Uh, and, and thank you all for coming today. I really appreciate it. And enjoy the rest of the festival. Hey, I know you're out of here. You got to go.